Turning back in the Word of the Lord tonight to the book of Genesis and the sixth chapter. The book of Genesis and the chapter six. And we're looking at that familiar text that many a gospel sermon has been fashioned around, and that is verse three. I'm well aware that we can say here, and uh, you can see the margin of your Bible will say that my spirit shall not always strive, or an alternative reading, abide with man. Man is flesh, and there was a time limit imposed here. And whereas we have in the previous chapter people living for so many hundreds of years, then we have a limitation put on of 120, and we know in Psalm 90, we have Moses writing and talking about 70 or, if by reason of strength, 80 years. Uh, so there is a further limitation. But we're taking it here in that sense of the Spirit of God speaking to individuals. We do, of course, believe in the sovereignty of God in salvation. That is undoubted. We also believe, of course, in man's responsibility. And we believe in the call, the open, free call of the gospel to all who are in sin. And may the Lord speak to hearts tonight. Verse 3 of Genesis chapter 6, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. For that he is also flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. With God's word open before us, let's bow together, please, in a further word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank Thee for what we've been singing and thinking upon and meditating upon and reading tonight. We thank Thee for the Word of life, the book of God, and we rejoice that it is by the words of this book that Thou dost make our heart live. We thank Thee that it is by the words of the book that Alistair D. and through the foolishness of preaching that men should believe. And Father, we pray if there be those in the meeting, those tuned in over the internet, and as yet they do not believe in Christ. They are not yet converted by the power of the Spirit. Well, Thou was said that Thy task on earth is to convince of sin and convince of righteousness and convince of judgment to come. And the passage we have read tonight, uh, what we've heard in song as well, has led us down the line whereby there was much sin about in the days of Noah, and there was much need, as God saw it, for judgment. And so we pray that thou wilt convince us in this day and generation that we are but on the, the cusp of the life to come. There is but a step between us and death. We cannot predict how short our time is. And no matter how long we might imagine it could be, then in comparison with eternity, it is dramatically short. May we number our days, apply our hearts unto wisdom, see that the one thing that is needful is done, and as the Spirit of God strives and speaks, may we call upon Jesus Christ for mercy and come to Jesus, and through him may we live in thy name 
and to thy glory sake we pray. Amen. The entrance of sin brought terrible havoc to the human race. And so we have the scythe of sin and it's sweeping through and it's laying low every bit of godliness in its wake. We have the poison of sin and it just doesn't content itself with a little bit of injection here and causing a little problem there, but it poisoned the entire man. There in the Garden of Eden we have evil and it grabs hold of the rudder of the ship. And it determines that it's going to drive and steer men and women, and it will steer them as far away from God as you can possibly imagine. So we have all kinds of vile imaginations taking control. Earth becomes nothing less than a dark, downward, spiraling road to hell. But still... The devil wasn't completely satisfied with that because his triumph at that stage was not quite total. There was a power at work, and while he knew there was a power at work in this world, and that would have been counteracting much of the devil's murderous moves and check-making, mating his advance. So we have barriers set up in front of the devil, put there to beat back the flood of wickedness. We have barriers to restrain the sweeping hurricane of iniquity. We have barriers put in to ensure that this world did not become a place of unchecked rebellion, that no one ever heard and that no one ever feared the voice of the eternal God. And we have some captives And they are miraculously rescued from the tyrant Satan's grip. They burst out of the tomb of spiritual death. They throw away the grave clothes in which he had wound them. And they go forward as new creatures throbbing and pulsating with new life. So in that surrounding darkness... For example, we have Abel, and he is given sight in his day to see the path of redemption because he understands it is by the blood of a sacrifice, that slain lamb, that he is going to know salvation. And he took the path that God revealed to him. We have again in the middle of a stumbling crowd, we have Enoch, and he was given the strength by God Almighty so that he might walk with God. Other people, in fact virtually everybody else, might be stumbling on in the darkness in the other direction away from God, but we have Enoch walking with God. Sometimes we think, isn't it a difficult age in which to bring up children? We fear for, at my stage, our grandchildren, and we think bringing them into a world of sin and shame like this, what chance have they? They'll be submerged at every point and turn along the way, and we fear for them, and therefore we redouble our efforts in prayer for them, and we imagine, is it even possible to walk with God in the kind of society in which we live today? Well, Enoch back then walked with God in this kind of society. Back in his day, we have read the whole snapshot shot of the picture that we have here in Genesis 6, whereby the people here were doing wickedly every single day. But while we have Abel, while we have Enoch, in all these other places, sin was checked, but not subdued. Consciences were roused, but not fully enlightened. We have convictions troubled, but not many conversions followed. 
Now, who do you think that great counter-attacking and arresting agent was? Who was it who was resisting the ravages of the devil? Who was it leading the counter-offensive against Satan and his hordes? Who was it that sought out men, strove with them, and saved them? Genesis 6 and 3 has the answer, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And the answer to the question, who was that great counteracting agent, is of course, God the Holy Spirit. He was the one leading the charge against the devil and all of his forces. The first thing we're looking at tonight, therefore, is the reality of the striving of the Spirit. The reality of the striving of the Spirit. From the very beginning, the Holy Ghost was mightily at work in this earth. In fact, what we read in the opening verses in Genesis chapter 1, when the earth was formless and void and dark and unsightly chaos, when it was a shapeless mass, what do we have? We have these words, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, Genesis 1 and the verse 2, the first reference to his work. I read as well in Psalm 33 and verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of him by the breath of his mouth. In Job 26, verse 13, By his spirit he hath garnished the heavens. That word garnished only ever appears once in all of Scripture. What it means is to make it firm and to make it clear, and that's what he's done in the heavenly places with all of that canopy of orbs that we have and planets and stars all around. But these wonders performed in the material world by the part of the Holy Spirit, they're only faint shadows of what he does when he gets to work with inward power. You see, the soul of man is that theater of the grand operations of God the Holy Spirit. It is here, in the mind, in the heart, in the soul of man, that he does his stupendous work. Here he works mysteriously. Remember Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, who came for that interview by night. And he's explaining to him how salvation comes about in the soul of man. And he says, the wind bloweth. Were it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, canst not understand whither it cometh, whither it goeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. It's a mysterious thing, Nicodemus. You can't put a tracker on it. You can't possibly predict how he will work in any given situation. Sometimes the wind will rush with a furious force in a storm. On other occasions, it'll sigh softly like a summer breeze. But while it is mysterious, he is working mightily in drawing poor sinners to Jesus Christ. And you and I can point to people who've been saved that we thought never would ever be saved, never had an interest in their lives, in the things of God. But all of a sudden, the Spirit of God catches them, arrest that man he determines. And there are those special, those dramatic conquests. In many other cases, common calls. Some men and women are his glorious trophies. Others are beacons, and they're sending out red lights of warning all over our city, all over our nation. Warnings not to resist the love of God 
in Christ. So the Holy Spirit finds men and women in corruption, molded in evil, cut off from God, blind in their understanding, hardened in their hearts, the willing slaves of Satan. They love to sin. Wanderers on the broad road that's leading to destruction. But what does he do? He illuminates their darkness by directing heavenly light into their souls. He reveals God and his attributes, God and his just demands, God and his law, God and his truth, God and his mercy, God and his grace, God and his love. He implants within them the thought of their terrible transgressions. And so the sinner, under the operation of God the Holy Spirit, begins to tremble and is full of shame and he feels my countless sins. Look at the mass of them. They're dragging me down into eternal wrath. And other thoughts then begin to fill his mind. Where can I run? For refuge? Am I going to be forever lost with no hope? Is my hell going to be my inevitable destiny? No way out, no escape. It's a happy day when those inward pangs of conscience are first felt, and when they continue, and when they build up, and when the Spirit of God begins to work like this upon a man or upon a woman, it doesn't feel happy. It feels so hurtful at the time, but it's so necessary. And it brings real happiness when this whole process is over. What does the Spirit do? He slays her pride all our trust in ourselves for salvation. He chases our ignorance away and shows us how the plan of salvation is formulated by the hand and through the mind of God. He leads us down into the valley of great tribulation. He makes us feel the load of our sin. There's a burden on my back weighing right through into my heart. And then the path, he has cleared it for his saving work. Raises us up out of the quicksand, takes us out of the swamp, puts us onto a solid rock, tells the story of love and grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. In other words, he gets us to Calvary. He shows us Christ, who is ready to undertake a rescue, who is powerful to achieve that rescue. We're told how he has come to this earth of ours in human nature, a body hast thou prepared me, he says to his father. How in that body he has emptied the last dark dregs of the cup of suffering. He has shed his precious blood with all of its cleansing power for our ransom. We hear about the cross and all of its expiating virtue, the death and all of its ransoming effects. We hear about the sin bearer and his agony bearing the load on our behalf. We hear about the lawful filler who answered every jot of justice that God demanded of her sin. We hear of the transfer of his righteousness. Mine is the guilt, but thine the cleansing blood. And all of this, it's passing as if it was a film reel in front of our eyes, scene by scene by scene by glorious scene, as we begin to understand what Calvary is all about, what the hymn writer said, Oh, tell me what it meaneth. That cross, uplifted high with one, the man of sorrows, condemned to bleed and die. You see, this is the work of God the Holy Spirit. This is what he was commissioned to do.
to show Christ to us who didn't know him, couldn't work out, couldn't understand even how the Bible was presenting him. He brings him in all of his fullness to us, in all of our emptiness of need. And so I read in John 16, for example, the verse 7 through to the verse 14, the Comforter, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, he will come unto you, and when he has come, well, he's going to reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he goes on to say, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And by the way, you in the Church of England don't need that debate about personal pronouns conferred on God. Just read your Bible. Just read the Word. Don't run about in further folly and blindness and reject Scripture even more than you've done. And it's been pretty lamentable right up until this point. The Holy Spirit whatsoever, He shall hear. That shall He speak. And He will show you things to come. He shall, Jesus said, glorify me, for He shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And what happens? Under the operation, the scribing of the Holy Spirit, the broken sinner looks, he wanders, he believes, he sees Christ almighty to save, he sees him welcome into the joys of salvation, he's subdued, he's melted, he's attracted, he comes closer and closer still, he finds himself now in the arms of salvation, sits down under Christ's shadow with great delight, he's persuaded my sins, though they're many, are cleansed, they're pardoned. God is reconciled. Heaven is secured. It's a happy, glorious work, this work of God the Holy Spirit. But is that the end of His operations and contact with us? No, it's not. Having begun this work of revealing Christ and His grace to us, He keeps going. He carries on the task until eventually he has been able to come forward and put the glorious capstone on the whole spiritual building. And we're ready for glory. He makes fuller, richer, larger revelations of the Lord to our hearts. He directs our souls to gaze more intently on Christ. And as we gaze more intently, our joy increases, our love increases, our desire to serve Him and glorify Him increases, and the Spirit's daily visits. They elevate our walk, and they cultivate this nearness to Jesus Christ. He's our guard. He was mighty to warn, to teach, to guide, to cleanse, to purify, to sanctify, to cheer us, to bless us. And as a result of His work in our hearts, we come to resemble Christ more and more. The new man is increasingly put on, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4 and the verse 24. You see, the Holy Spirit, 
He lifts us above the wind and the waves of the stormy voyage of earth. He guards us from the wily temptations of the tempter. He eventually leads us home to the house of many mansions, the paradise of the saved, that glorious place where every sea of soul is shining forever as a monument that the Spirit called me, that He enabled me, that He worked upon me with sanctifying grace. And every pilgrim saint walking through this earth, every glorified saint above, were all evidence of this sovereign trial. Hallelujah, tis done. I believe on the Son. I am saved through the blood of the crucified one. That's our cry. That's our confession. Now, make no mistake about it. All who enter heaven must come this way. It's the only route. They must be born again by the Spirit's regenerating power. John 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He must be brought to Christ by his all-conquering arm. But he mightily commences the work. Then he continues it. And what he starts and continues, he completes the reality of the striving of the Spirit. But anything secondly of the resistance to the striving of the Spirit, the resistance to the striving of the Spirit. Sad fact is, the earth is filled with multitudes of people who are strangers to Christ. They haven't run to His cross. They haven't been sprinkled with His blood. Hardened they live, and hardened, many of them die. Can we draw the conclusion from their hardness that They've never received any outward warnings. They've never had an inward check. They've never known a gleam of light breaking through to illuminate the darkness of their minds, illuminate the darkness that is in their souls. But the Bible's not silent on that. And the word that we have in our text tonight is full of teaching. Genesis 6 and 3. My spirit shall not always strive. Shall not always strive with man. Before the flood... The Spirit of God worked powerfully. He's the same in all ages, past, present, and future. And there were those people that he didn't always strive with prior to the flood. And there are those people today who he does not always strive with now. They may be here a word, another pang and prick of conscience, followed by another, and then there's nothing. What was his method of working before the flood? Well, he gave loud testimony then. He sent forth thrilling notes of truth. He raised up preachers as well to call men out of their sin. And to God, we think of Enoch. And with that free offer of the gospel in mind, we have Jude 14 and verse 15. So from the start of the Bible, Genesis, where Enoch's story is narrated. History is there. We have to run away right through to the end of Scripture virtually to Jude to find out exactly what he did. And Enoch also, we read there in Jude 14, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, preached of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of the saints to execute judgment upon all, to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speech 
preaches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so he's preaching the Enoch. Words clear as the light, as awful as the roar of thunder. And he's telling of final judgment, of the earth's end game, of vengeance to the uttermost. He doesn't hold back. Nor did Noah. He stands on a very high pedestal as a preacher of righteousness. His theme unfolded, our God as being gracious in love, but glorious in justice. Holding true to all of his claims, and yet providing a covering for the sinner that was sufficient to get that sinner from earth right through to heaven. Through many years, 120 some people will imagine here, Noah was waving on high the gospel torch, laterally come into the ark, come for the place of refuge and safety. In all of these warnings, these displays of saving love, the Spirit is working energetically. Emotions rise and then emotions evaporate. The preacher stops with his voice silence. Conscience just drifts away back into its old stupor again. And the old allurements, they take over. The spirit is resisted. Impressions, they're obliterated like words on the sand when the tide comes in and just sweeps those words all out again. And the heart becomes a rock. My spirit shall not always strive with man. I can't tell how it is between you and God. I don't have a clue. I can't tell whether the Spirit is striving with you now or not. I can't read the history of the book of past dealings that he has had with you. Nobody knows those solemn secrets but you and God. But you may be conscious there has been a voice. And it has spoken to me in the inner chamber of my thoughts. It has addressed me. You might know as well there was an unseen hand that touched me in my spirit Maybe in this house, men of God have probed your conscience as they have spoken and preached the word. They have told of sin's definite end, of judgment, of hell beyond, of flames that never die, of worms that always gnaw. And in a moment of terror, you resolved with that wrath and those thunderbolts of wrath threatening to fall upon you and consume you. You resolved, I will come to Christ. But that fear didn't last. Like the early Jew, it passed away. My spirit shall not always strive with man. Maybe it was a form of some persuasive testimony. And you heard someone tell the story of God's grace in their lives. And you're thinking, that's nearly identical to my life. That's the way I've been living. This is remarkable, the story this man or woman is telling. And again, all of the grace and the gentleness and love and the power of God were coming over your soul and you were ready to fly into his arms, but you delayed. And the hardening world once again surrounded you with all its chains. And you fell back into that darkness and the Savior's face receded from your view. Will you ever see that light again? My spirit shall not always strive. There may have been times when the voice of providence was sounding out all around you. Maybe a catastrophe that brought a powerful message to your heart. Had that been me, you would have been asking. 
Maybe some sickness, a sudden stroke that failed a friend of yours right in the prime of life and that sobered you. Maybe a strong disease that took your freedom and it seemed to be squeezing you with an iron grasp. Those are similar calamities may have opened your eyes to how empty and how deceptive this world really is and how it's not really worth clinging on to if you're going to cling to it and lose out on Christ. And so you've been alive to your danger and your thoughts have turned to safety and the only Savior. But you're sitting here tonight or you're tuned in from your own home and you know that call was loud and you know that call was heard and you think it was almost obeyed but you paused and now you're as far away from Christ as ever. Will those opportunities ever come knocking to your door again? My spirit shall not always strive. Maybe your eye rested on the Bible word. The text of Scripture seemed to answer your case. It got hold of you. It pursued you. It even haunted your ears. And you're lying in bed and you're seeing it. And it's terrorizing you. I was reading how the California State Highway Department, a number of years ago, they brought in a scheme to stop drivers going the wrong way on the freeways. I saw that not so long ago here, just merrily driving towards me. And they were blaming these kind of drivers for 8% of all fatalities in the state of California, near Sacramento. Drivers entering an exit ramp the wrong way were now greeted with a blaring horn, 12-inch red light, a sign that instantly illuminated, and it said, go back, you're going the wrong way. A detector buried in the pavement, sensitive to vehicles, traveling in the wrong direction, activated all of this. This book, the Bible, has done all of that for you. Truth is spoken in new and convincing form. Time seemed to vanish because eternity stirred you in the eye. Gigantic realities, as they are, appeared then gigantically real. You felt the duty and the wisdom, indeed, of immediate repentance. But before you turned, some snare got you again. And you're still sitting unrepentant. Will your Bible speak ever like this again? My spirit shall not always strive. Maybe some friend took your hand and reasoned. And encouraged you, and you confessed. The course I'm on is wrong. I have no peace. I dread the future. I hear of joy in Christ and peace in Him and pardon through Him. You know what? I'll seek Him for salvation. But no, you didn't. You were detoured again and loitered on the playground of earth. It's foul playground. The opportunity passed. Nobody seems now to care for you. It seems as if they've given up on you. Will those friendly calls ever return? My spirit shall not always strive. Do you see your photograph in these words? Does your conscience rise up and say, you know what, that's the path I'm on. That's where I've been walking. Well, listen carefully and solemnly. If it does, it may be another, it may be another follow-up conquering visit this time by the Spirit of God. Pray that it is. Pray as you sit, Lord, speak to me again. 
Lord, may thy word touch my heart again. Make me aware of my need again. Help me to see Christ as the only Savior again. Push me to action. The reality of the striving of the Spirit, the resistance to the striving of the Spirit. Finally, the reprobation after the striving of the Spirit. It'll be cruel for me to conceal from you that you're actually tottering on the brink of destruction. There's a time in the downward course when warnings warn no more. Genesis 6 and 3, my spirit shall not always strive with man, apparently. Five warnings about an iceberg were telegraphed to the ill-fated Titanic when the sixth message, look out for icebergs, came in. The Titanic's operator wired back, shut up. I'm busy. Exactly 35 minutes later, that great ship. And in Belfast, we still boast about her. Someone had boasted back then as well that God himself couldn't sink this ship. But 35 minutes later, it was sinking. Over 1,500 passengers and crew went down to their deaths in the icy mid-Atlantic waters. You've heard, I'm sure, about the Bible talking about a reprobate mind in Romans 1 and 28. It's not a figment of imagination. It's not something just spoken up to give terror to your heart. It's a sad description of a sadder state, the midnight darkness of a soul that has already, while they're here on earth, drifted off into the realms where there's not an experience of one single gospel ray. Tremble you ever get there. There is also a decree of God that locks up a sinner in hopelessness, that paralyzes the sinews of grace, that freezes all the streams of feeling, that chokes every avenue of impression, that rivets the chains of the devil around you. He's done it before, for I read in Hosea chapter 4 and verse 17 regarding Ephraim, God saying, Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Then the final curtain falls. Judicial deafness comes in. The hardness is there that cannot be melted. Think of Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. And God determined, well, if that's the way you want it, that's the way it'll be. And after Pharaoh hardening and hardening and hardening his heart, we then begin to read in Scripture, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he's saying, as he can so readily say, when all of the avenues, all of the calls, all of the cries to come to Jesus have been heard, let them alone, my ministers and evangelists. When you have set forward the Savior's love and all the glories of his finished work, the total pardon purchased by his blood, all the peace of faith, all the happiness of heaven, let them alone. Let everything be dark now in front of his eyes. Let them alone, my Bible. When his eye reads through Scripture, lands on the brightest of texts, sending out invitations to the cross, warning of hell, describing the eternal world, let it not be seen by him. Let it be a blur. Let him stay in the realms of agony. Let the page have words like a skeleton. 
breathing no life. Let him alone. Let him alone, my providences. Even if the whole universe was convulsed with earthquakes and hurricanes and appalling terrors and wars breaking out all over the place, desolating plagues coming in, let him look at it all. See the TV every hour. See all the horror scenes. Be unmoved. Let him stand steely by an open grave. Let him lie hardened on the bed of pain in the middle of everything that should alert, should alarm him. Let his rocky heart become more adamantine. Let him alone. Let him alone, my son. You're all love and all grace and all mercy. But love must not love him. Grace must not look savingly on him. Mercy must not yearn tenderly over him. Your blood must not cleanse him. Your cross is no shelter for him. Your righteousness will not be his robe. You've spoken to his heart. Speak no more. Let him alone. Let him alone, my spirit. It's your property, your job to give grace. It's your province to convince of sin. It's your prerogative to reveal Jesus Christ. It's your glorious pleasure to minister salvation. But leave him or her graceless. Don't break their fetters. Don't give them a sight of Jesus. You've striven often. Strive no more. Let them alone. What a warning we have. In Genesis 6 and 3, my spirit shall not always strive with man. I tremble at this. I trust you will tremble. Through this text as well, it'll have an impact upon your heart. For then I can say, if you're trembling, the decree of God has not locked you up in condemnation. Hear the whisper of a spirit. Don't quench the first spark of his light. Never neglect his gentlest voice. Never resist his mildest drawing. Yield to him full obedience. Lord Jesus Christ. You have said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Lord Jesus, I am coming. Coming to Christ. Coming to the only one who can save me. Speak on. Speak on. By thy mighty Spirit. To my heart. To the heart of my friends. To the heart of my family. And don't let this text ever be their epitaph. Here's what happened. My Spirit shall not always strive with man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that this has been a solemn time, looking into thy word, but we pray that through the solemnity thou wilt be speaking. What a mercy it is if we hear the speaking voice of God. As the free offer of the gospel of Christ has gone out tonight, we pray that by thy Spirit thou wilt awaken men and women to their responsibility to turn and trust in Christ, turn from sin, turn to the Savior. May it happen for our Lord's sake and their soul's salvation. Amen.